And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf, with multiple award-nominated author of The Devil in America, Sorcerer of the Will Deeps, and new novel A Taste of Honey, Kaya Shotante Wilson on the Coot Street Podcast! And we're off. I don't know why I always say and we're off after you do that. It sounds like you're announcing a race. But, but Kai, thank you very much for agreeing to be with us. We've been wanting to talk to you ever since you won the cross. Offered award and the belated congratulations for that and and congratulations for the nebula and world fantasy and shirley jackson nomination and the locus award nomination all on the basis of what a handful of stories you published well i i appreciate the nominations and so forth but i certainly didn't expect any of them when i was writing i was just so happy to get in print and mm-hmm. start writing because i got a late start well, I mean, let's start there if we can. How did you get started? I mean, the first story that I'm aware of of yours was Super Base from Tor.com in 2013, so it's not that long ago. How did things get started? Well, I was in my mid-30s and really thinking that I might never write unless I got a good push and went to a program of some sort. And so I went to Clarion. Because I didn't even have a clue about the magazine culture, where to publish, or how to go about any of that. Mm-hmm. And I learned that at Clarion. And from that point, I started really aggressively trying to finish stories and send them out. And Super Bass was the first that got published. And I was about 39 at that point. So it felt, it felt urgent that I be serious about it and that I really send my stuff out and try to finish it. Just out of curiosity, which clarion did you go to and which teachers seemed to really influence you there? I went to um, the clarion in San Diego. Oh. And, and I really enjoyed the experience of being with all the teachers. It's the environment that matters more than any single teacher. But concretely, um, Chip, Chip Delaney, you know, taught me things about writing itself that that helped quite a bit oh i imagine that was an astonishing teacher to have had you been reading a lot writing a lot up until uh that point or has it been one of those things you sort of always meant to focus on but it never really got to i wrote tons but i never finished anything i have stacks and stacks of half-finished novels and so forth but i i didn't know how to finish things and i didn't know how not to bite off more than i could chew so clarion really forced me to pull back start with stories then think about novelettes then think about novellas and that that really helped well if if we take a step back usually there's a history as a reader that has led you up to becoming the writer that you are what sort of a, of a reader were you, you know, as you grew up? I mean, was fantasy, which you're primarily writing, was that your your primary reading matter, or, or who were you when you were reading? There was a period where I read mostly fantasy and science fiction, but I was very young when that was true. And from that point on, science fiction and fantasy hasn't been a huge part of what I read, but it's definitely all that I write or or the only thing that inspires me to write i and nowadays i read mostly mainstream fiction so things have changed a lot okay i, I was just going to say that uh, in, in in the last 20 years or so it seems that the the line between mainstream fiction and fantasy and science fiction is getting narrower and narrower with uh, with karen joy fowler getting nominated for national book awards and, and Le Guin getting the recognition she's getting uh, and and writers who begin as mainstream writers like Colson Whitehead writing within genre very happily these days. So I'm not sure that it's easy to make that distinction between mainstream and genre anymore. Um, I agree with you to a certain extent, but I've really experienced the the work that science fiction and fantasy writers create differently than I do this science fiction and fantasy that mainstream writers write. Um, I, and, people, and people who have gotten information in the mainstream 
and then write a genre book. It just who they're appealing to, the setup, all of it seems very different to me. And I'm very aware when I'm writing that that I can that I can appeal to a science fiction or fantasy writer who also likes mainstream themes, but someone who's primarily mainstream is probably not going to dig my stuff so much. Uh, that's interesting. Have you had any responses from mainstream readers to Sorcerer? I guess you wouldn't have had any responses to A Taste of Honey yet, but um, do, 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 do you get... Go ahead. I mean, a few. I've shown it. At, I have um, a few uh, a few members of my family who like to read a lot, and mm -hmm. some of them read as widely as I do. And and they and they dig some of my writing, and some of them read only mainstream stuff, and they've been and they're patient with my stuff, but they don't really care. <laughs> and, and my brother is really open-minded. He likes some. Um, he reads a lot of fantasy too, so he's as enthusiastic about it as I am. And and he digs my stuff, and he seems to get it too. Well, that's cool. So how was it that Superbase became uh, your first piece? I mean, you talk about, how, uh, you've told us about going to Clarion and presumably you know, the people you meet there. Suddenly, Anne Vandermeer is editing a story of yours for what's currently the, you know, the biggest market in the, in, the, in the field. How did that actually happen? She, um, she invites people to submit to her. Um, who've learned from her, who've been students of hers at one point, and she's, you know, rejected things that I've written too. So she was willing to look at it and she ended up liking it and and I think no matter how talented or you are or how good whatever your writing might be, you just really have to have some kind of entree before you actually get published. And especially at a place like Tor where they're inundated with, with so much material that even a lot of good stuff gets pushed to the side. How was it you came to write Devil in America? How did that come uh, come about? Because it appears to me, reading your work, that it's quite different from at least two or three, you know, three of your main stories. Well, a lot of my stories, um, I have a huge sort of novelesque universe moving about in my head. And so... This, a lot of the stories that I've written sort of dip into that novel universe and sort of take out a bite-sized chunk. And that's why they seem similar to each other. But I also have, um, I guess, a few, you know, 10 or so urgent tales that I want to get around to writing at some point or another. And The Double in America tapped into some one of those tales that have just been growing in my head for years and years. And it all clicked the politics that were that were that were in the news at the time and still are and my inspiration and ideas about how I could get it down on paper came together all at the same time and that's where the double in America that's how that came about in general I have very different ideas but I still have that huge novel universe in my head too so I'll be going oh, I back want, I want to get to that novel universe in a minute but it just occurred to me while you were talking you were talking about the political situation in America that that title, The Devil in America, is far more appropriate now than it was when you wrote the story. Yeah, it's it's discouraging. I mean, I thought I thought that that story would speak to a particular historical moment, and we'd just move on, and you know, people would look at it as a piece that heard the one in American history. But it's become only more relevant, unfortunately. I know. Well. Let's let's hope its relevance will fade in a few weeks. It came out of this idea of what an African America. I was reading an interview with you online about it. That was the sort of the spark for it. Um, not that particular story. Um, I had um, one thing that's one thing that's uh, kind of a unique position for African Americans is that is that we can't point back to a particular country that we came from and say, oh, those people are our ancestors. Before we came here, we were there because our ancestry is so mixed. And so in a lot of my fantasy fiction, I decided that I wanted to, that I needed to create this idea of a continent, an original imaginary place for all African Americans. And, and it's a fantasy land, obviously, but 
And that's where that particular notion came from. And then that led led on to the Devil in America itself. Were you surprised at the reception of that story? Well, it seemed it seemed pretty hot material. I wasn't even sure I would get it published in the first <laughs> place. It was it was frightening to write, and then it was frightening to show people, and then it was frightening to put up because I didn't know what kind of reception um, it would it would it would get. And I was I was surprised that it did as well as it did. Why frightening? Well, it was really raw. I mean, I was I was talking about um, many of the things that matter most to me in life, and that was something that George R. R. Martin talked about at Clarion. And I think that every writer has to come to that realization that the the stuff that you feel most vulnerable about and that hurts the most is also the stuff that you have to put in your fiction in the most naked way in order to give it any real sense of power. And that story had a lot of that, a lot of me in it, a lot of, a lot of the things that hurt me most. So that was, what was, does that make that a, a more personal story than say Sorcerer of the Well Deeps? Um, I mean, it was also difficult because I think that the the politics in the Devil in America are more discernible um, yeah. than necessarily are in the Wild Deeps. So that, you know, I, I knew that it would push other people's buttons, too. That, that was another part of what was frightening for it. But the Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps is, is definitely a very personal piece, too. I'm oh, yes. Sure, I'm not sure I could even say that one is more personal than the other. I guess it's fair to say that one may be more immediate than the other in terms of the circumstances in which we find ourselves living now. Um, but it's it's always been, uh, it's one of the interesting things, and I, I noticed uh, the same issue uh, in, in, in The Taste of Honey. It's It seems to be a challenge for writers to um, deal with political tensions in fiction that um, that is perceived as being unrealistic, unrelated to, 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 to the world and so forth. I, I'm, I'm thinking of um, what China Mieville has said about his fiction. His, his political positions are very, um, very clear. His, his, his nonfiction is very clear. His uh, work in economics is very clear. His, his position as a leftist scholar um, in England is very clear. But he said also that you have to know how to read his books in order to see the political attitudes in his books. And they're there, but they're not overt. They're not directly connected to, uh, to the reader's world unless the reader is pretty sophisticated. I mean, I like to, I like to write very digested fiction, you know, that I, I want, I want the world and the characters to feel very lived in. And I don't want it to be any sort of didactic lesson. Like I don't want I don't want readers to feel nourished and educated when when they're finished <laughs> with one of my works. You know I want you know the aesthetic dimension is so much more important to me than all of that. But at the same time, the aesthetics couldn't exist without you know my full political engagement at the same time. So one is one is paramount, but the other is completely necessary to the process. I think that's very similar to to, to what China's point was, and it's uh, it, it's a point that comes up again and again in, in in fantasy and science fiction. On the other hand, the advantage historically is that you can say things in many ways more directly in a fantastic narrative than you could in a realistic narrative. You might be able to get away with more, do you think? I think so. I mean, I think that, I think that there, I think that people are willing to hear um, in the trappings of a fantasy world that they wouldn't care to hear in a more realistic setting. Um, at the same time, I'm not interested in saying those kind of things. <laughs> I mean, no. I, I, I also think that, um, I experience my characters as sort of um, as real people while I'm in the process of writing um, of writing a piece, and so 
a lot of times I feel a story will jerk me in a direction that I wasn't necessarily anticipating or, or didn't want or, or don't, or even don't think works very well, but, but that still feels organic for that character. And, and I really submit to that process too. And that's quite apart from any consideration of politics. Mm -hmm. Well, I could see, for example, um, in the um, source of the world, there's a lot of a, a lot of very gritty detail about what it would be like to be on a caravan, and then the kind of uh, ground level details. As a matter of fact, I, you mentioned George Martin, and one of the things that struck me immediately with the, the beginning of the Song of Ice and Fire, which I confess I have confessed before on the podcast, I've not read all of them. I've told George I haven't read all of them, but uh, that was described to me once as as on the ground writing, in that you get a sense in, in in his novels of every detail of what it would be like to live in. In this world, and you get that same kind of detail in the source of the Wildeeps, even though it's at a much shorter length. And one of the remarkable things about it, and uh, we talked about it, uh, the people who are um, voting to give it the Crawford Award, that there's there's an enormous amount of density to a novella. And I think the same thing, by the way, is true. If anything, even more true with a taste of honey. I mean, this is um at an idiosyncratic preference of mine, but, but I really, I really want to have the sense when I'm reading of a body in space in a particular time and a particular place, and, and and that there's a real person experiencing all that. And I do my utmost to try to bring that into fiction. Well, was there any? Uh, to go back to the question that Jonathan asked earlier about what should be reading. There are a couple of people that have pointed out. Uh, at least in, in, in sort, at least in there's a kind of sword and sorcery world that sounds on the surface a little bit like Fritz Leiber, uh, maybe a little bit like George Martin, uh, and yet there's maybe a little bit like Gene Wolfe because in both of these there's an implication that this imaginary world of yours. I mean, they both are involved with this uh, kingdom of Olorum. Is that how you pronounce it? Olorum. Um, Olorum. Yes. Olorum. Okay. Which. And I don't think I'm giving away anything here, but it, it, it becomes more a science fictional world the further you get into the narrative. Yeah, I wasn't. I mean, I think that that had a lot to do with um, the way I experience our technology nowadays. Like, I don't, I'm not a very technological person, so I don't understand how cell phones and computers work. <laughs> And when and then when people try to explain it to me, my brain sort of half shuts off, and I say, "Yeah, yeah, 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 yeah." And and so I imagine, like you know, being in a magical kingdom and so forth, that that everything would actually have all all these reasonableness, this technology behind it, and that mm -hmm. and that there would be people who would discern this and understand it, you know, much better than I did. So I I try to bring that sense into my writing too that of um of you know living in a place where there's all this rich technology but you only half perceive how it's all working and and it may you know be working under principles that that are really scientific in some way mm -hmm. or might be magical so I mean it, all that wasn't purposeful it was just you know, I experience the world we're living in is magical, although it's really technological. So I just bring that into the fiction. Well, one of the terms you use in um, A Taste of Honey is psionics, which is a word that was really popular in science fiction in the early 1950s. And John W. Campbell, people were thinking of it as a serious science of telepathy and telekinesis and so forth and so on. Um, and then it kind of disappeared. So I was a little surprised to see it. Uh, in this novella, where it could be either a science or a pseudoscience, depending on how you want to read it. Yeah, that's probably um, a callback to some of the stuff that I was reading when I was reading. <laughs> I mean, I used to love that psionic stuff. Um, Joan Vinge, is that how you say her last name? Vinge. Vinge. She had um, Cat's Paw and um, kind of a, a psychic spy of some sort, and mm -hmm. I used to love those books. So, Scion, you, you know that book, too. I, 
So, I, I mean, I wanted that stuff in my book, too. It's, I mean, all of my books are just full of stuff that I've read in different places and sort of synthesizing to my own thing. Well, they, sh they should be. I think that's a good thing. I, I think the thing about psionics is we were talking about um, um, telepathy a few weeks ago. I did a podcast with Connie Willis, whose big new novel is about telepathy. And it's an idea which seems to have fallen out of favor with science fiction writers uh, many years ago. But it's such a great storytelling device that how can you resist it? Exactly. And, and I don't. I mean, the sort of the recent trends in science fiction, which is seems much more near future and on planet Earth and reasonably mm -hmm. um, extrapolatable from where we are right now, is not so much. It's not so interesting to me as some of the stuff as I as I was reading when I was much younger. So I don't mm -hmm. I don't keep up with it as much. Is that because of changes in you or because the kind of future they, that gets extrapolated in your near future science fiction doesn't engage you or is too grim? No, um, I like some of the really grim stuff. <laughs> I like grim. Um, but I think some of this new future, this um, near future stuff is just done better by mainstream writers and that science fiction writers, I don't know, I think it would be, would be better served to have a more far flung imagination, I guess. That sounds unfair, right? <laughs> but that's how it, it, it raises an interesting question about uh, social versus aesthetic ambitions, I guess. I mean, there are writers like Kim Stanley Robinson and Paolo Bacigalupi who are very passionate about the issues that are with us right now and write near science, near future science fiction, partly to terrify us, I think. On the other hand, Stan Robinson has written things like 2312 that are set a couple of, you know, uh, centuries in the future in a in an inhabited solar system i mean can't you do it both ways can't you have it both ways well some of it is just um preference you know i read ah. um i read um the most recent novel about uh the drought in arizona the water knife and the reason i love that novel was just because of the texture of the setting i mean i thought yeah i found that so i adored it for that reason and Kim Stanley Robinson, I read his um, his Neanderthal novel recently. Oh, um, Shaman. Yes. Shaman. And I love that for the same reason, you know. Um, but I haven't I haven't um, read a whole lot of his science fiction. I'm curious: is something like Nevriona an inst an inspiration for you, or uh, something that you're? Um, I definitely read a lot of um, a lot of Delaney when I was younger. And the funny thing is, is that I came to, I discovered Nate Delaney before I, I knew about his earlier works and Tales of um, Niverion was the first book of his that I read. Mm -hmm. And I was blown away by it. I was just, I read that book over and over again. I had no idea that fantasy could, could look anything like that. Um, and so he definitely had a big influence on how I, think about about how I think about setting and how I think about bodies in space and expressing sensation and so forth in the story. Well, it's interesting that because that you're absolutely right. And coming into his late work, I, I can't imagine what that would be like. But then at, at some later point, did you go back and, and pick up uh, novels like Nova and Triton and the Einstein intersection and the famous early ones? Two or three years ago. And I mean, that's how recently I read it. And, and I really enjoyed it. But I mean, it was, I think inevitably when you come to a really great writer, like whatever you read first at your most formative period is going to be the stuff that really sticks with you. And and so the book of Delaney that's made the most impression on me, I think, is started in my pocket, which uh -huh. came to as a teenager, and I just just couldn't tear that book out of my hands. I would I would wait. I would want six months to pass so I could read the book again, or I wouldn't remember everything. So I would read it like twice a year for maybe a day. I can see that. I mean, because stars. And my pocket was like uh, the best of late Delaney and some of the best of early Delaney. I mean, it was partly a space opera. It was part. It was a post-Dahlgren novel. It was a post-Navarian novel. And yet, the energy that 
was astonishing. And I could, I, I'm going to be a vuncular. I'm going to sound like the old man that I am for a minute because if you had been around to read Nova in 1968, I mean, if you'd been around, well, you weren't even around. But Nova was like a Nova. I mean, it was like a, a completely different use of language in science fiction, a kind of characters we hadn't seen in science fiction, a kind of dialogue we hadn't seen in science fiction. And he never quite lost that edge and then went into this highly theoretical uh, period of the Nivarian stories. And it seems to me that Stars in My Pocket was uh, was a synthesis of all he had done before. But the reason I'm mentioning that is Nova in particular is that the dialogue, the characters, the way the characters spoke in the novel was as startling in 1968 as some of the reactions I saw to uh, A Sorcerer of the Wildeeps. And what you do with dialogue, which and, and, and there's, there's a bit of it in A Taste of Honey as well, although it's pretty much confined to one character, is really, um, really seems to startle people and they either seem to love it or just be confused by it. I mean, you're used, there, there's, there's basically hip-hop dialogue in A Sorcerer of the Wildeeps. Well, I, I guess, um, I mean, I live, in, I live in New York, I live in the Bronx, and... And so, you know, what I hear with the people I live with and the place that I live with, I mean, I've always felt like all this language deserves to be in the books, too. You know, and I think that I think that people don't necessarily have to speak like English peasants, you know, in, in Venice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they can speak like the people that I hear around me if I want them to. And, and they can also speak like English peasants if I want that. And, and I... And I use as many um, registers and voices that I felt um, that I felt capable of expressing well, you know, in my writing. And, I was, and I, go ahead. So I mean, that was that was what I was going for. That's all. How important is it to you when you are writing to? represent and include those different kind of voices because it's, it is very striking in, in, in Sorcerer and in Taste of Honey. Um, it's partly it's an aesthetic effect of what I want. I want different kinds of language to rub against each other and for, and for the reader to sort of float along for a while and then have a snatch of whiplash because of mm -hmm. how something is said and then, and then go back to floating and, be jerked around some and that's that's part of the aesthetic texture of the book that i'm going for and also it's I, just i uh, want, want my experience and my life and my observations to be in the book in, a, in an authentic way too and not to sort of be regurgitating things that i've already read in other books so that's the other part of it uh, it's, it's very striking in the taste of funny because you do have characters who talk if not like English peasants, they talk like high fantasy characters. And then uh, the, 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 the main characters, the love of his life, seems to have walked in from a Spike Lee movie. He's talking in a different kind of dialogue from everybody else. And it's, it's, it's jarring and, and refreshing at the same time in an aesthetic sense, not just in the sense of representing that kind of speech. And you'd written an essay, I believe, on Tor.com not long ago about how Margot Lanigan uses a completely different kind of dialogue for, for a similar kind of aesthetic effect, I think. Yes, I like, um, I like the, the, the textured sense and also the sense of uh, different classes mixing together, which is something mm -hmm. that happens a lot in New York, um, where you just have to speak to people from, from all different paths and you have to be fluent and fast on your feet and you want to communicate well in different settings. And some people don't do that well. And even people who, you know, have what we might want to call very well-spoken manners, and yet they're not very fluent when they have to speak to someone from a different background. And I think that's very interesting to watch and, and, and also to try to catch. And in a, in a taste of honey, there is also kind of a joke um, in the sense of, the people who are visiting the kingdom of Alorum don't really have a sense that in the kingdom, um, as there would be anywhere, there's different registers of language. Mm -hmm. and, and the particular character that you're referring to, he learned his register from 
someone who worked on a ship. Um, poor guy who was a sailor on a ship. Right. So his register is just not the same register that they use in the royal palace of Olora. Um, and he considers himself fluent, and the people that he's there with thinks that he's the fluent guy in the group, but he also doesn't speak in the register that's appropriate. So that's kind of a joke that's throughout okay. the novel. He's, he's he's a wonderful character. This is the uh, this is the warrior, the the visiting soldier, I guess. Uh, oh, I forgot. I'm, I'm, I'm I apologize for blanking it's on his okay. name. Akib is the main character. Um, yes. here, here's a question I have, and it's a question I have in mind for almost every fantasy author. Uh, you're dealing with an imaginary world, which in some ways reflects ours, in some ways doesn't, and you're using different, as you say, different registers of language. Are we to understand that these characters are speaking some variation of English, that in fact the dialogue we're reading is the dialogue they're speaking, or are we to assume that they're speaking in some set of languages that we don't really know about? Well, I imagine that there's, um, if you could uh, observe uh, the different social standings of the character and everything that's uh, communicated about race and, and wealth and education and geographical location, um, just in words and so forth, then the dialect that people speak in is most closely related to what there is in our world, but of course in their own place and time, wherever they are, they're speaking something completely different. I'm just yeah. trying translate into some analog that's, you know, understandable by the reader. I'm curious. <clears throat> we've talked, you know, we've talked about the world of Alorum. We've talked about Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps and Taste of Honey. Uh, how much of the rest of that universe actually exists in your mind and to some degree on paper? Oh, um, I mean, I think it's a 10 book series, um, at least, and five or six of them, uh, of, that, of those books in that ten book series have chapters written already for them, so uh, quite a bit of it is very, very developed in my head, um, and and I have things that I hope to finish. I mean, other books. It seems to me that the Wild Deeps universe and Taste of Honey and and Caju uh, Maximus they have similar concerns, but they're very different reading experiences. And so I'm also curious, whenever anybody launches into a, a well-developed universe, how much of it comes at the cost of having a chance to develop these other kinds of stories you'd like to tell as well? Well, as you point out, the stories are very, are very different from each other. And so I, it's important to me not to try to um, maintain some sort of consistency as far as uh, style and voice and so forth from story to story that while the universe is still there and I want to be and I want to develop that and be authentic to this vision that I have in my head the way I tell the story and what I can express in each thing you know each separate story gets to manifest itself in whatever whatever is the correct form so I give myself a lot of freedom with that because as you point out the stories don't look much like each other as far as style Do you feel like you are learning more mechanically about how to write structure and create stories so that you can build on to writing these uh, these other works that you, that you're uh, in, engaged in, in writing at the moment? Well, every I mean everything everything that I do teaches me so much. Um, so the learning process doesn't doesn't stop, but. Um, but I also don't think that uh, that it's practice in any sense. I mean, so that I can do, you know, the real thing later. It doesn't. I don't think it works like that for me either. I, I just do my best with each. Yeah, I, I guess. I guess I'm curious because I mean, the stories are getting longer, uh, but you're still you're still at that point where you're writing novellas and short stories rather than full novels that we're seeing yet. So I'm wondering if you're if you're feeling more confident about building story in completed pieces. Well, part of it is there's there's an exponential difference in difficulty, you know, between 
a 6,000 word story and and a 10,000 word story. And then from a 10,000 word story to a 30,000 word story. And I don't think that I really understood that. At first I thought, you know, you start with word one and you keep going and you keep going and eventually you have enough and you're done. But juggling the characters and juggling the scenes and the narrative demands are is it's huge. And and also I I think it's obvious that I write in a very dense manner. And trying to write with that sort of density and develop it over three hundred and four hundred pages has been extremely challenging for me. And I have a few novels that I'm working on, but God knows when they'll be finished. <laughs> well, there, there's a there, there's a moment, uh, there's a structural thing in A Taste of Honey, and uh, just for full disclosure, my review will be out in a couple of weeks in Locust, and I liked it, so don't worry about the review. But you have a you have a story that takes place over a few days, which is essentially a a, a love story, and a story that folds out over decades. In alternate chapters, and I don't think I'm giving too much away to say that because it's pretty much apparent by the third or fourth section of the novella. And that structure is very interesting. It gives us a good chunk of the history of this world of Alorum. And I think people are going to think this could have been a novel easily. This 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 has uh, a kind of short story aesthetic in some chapters and a kind of almost epic novel aesthetic in other chapters. And it, I, I, my, 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 I'm glad you, I'm glad it wasn't because I don't think it needed to be a novel. I think you got, you accomplished what you wanted to do in terms of this one character's looking at his life. But it might be that a lot of readers will think, hey, this could have been a big novel. There's a lot of stuff here, which is elited, which is, uh, which is subtly, uh, infused backstory, which we, are left wanting more of. And, and that particular feeling is something that I want to create in, in whatever I write at, at any length. And I think that a lot of my short stories, for example, there's, there's this sense that there's this huge world that's outside of, you know, the 5,000 or 6,000 words that I write in front of you. Uh-huh. But to do it again at a novel length, you know, there would be more mistakes there would be more material there, a lot more material, but there would also still have to be that huge structure of backstory and suggestions of other things. And that's what's so hard to create at, at such a length, you know, because I have to not just write the story, but also write the shadows that are at the edge of the story. And that's a hard part. Right. And when you get enough readers, uh, like George Martin does, you're going to have legions of fans telling you if you get something wrong, which makes it even more difficult. Um, and I haven't written right, yeah. uh-huh. encyclopedias yet that I can consult about, you know, the own world that I created. Well, one I think of the writers, Martin does have those. He does now. I mean, uh, and and he's very grateful for them. He's, he's not complaining about that at all. Uh, one of the writers who I think pioneered this kind of science fiction, at least, was Cordwainer Smith. And I don't know, did you ever read his work at all? I don't think I have. I mean, I must have read short stories of his at some point because well, the, yeah, they're almost all short stories. And he, he had the same issue. He had created this enormously complex future history of the instrumentality, which you can piece together over a period of stories. It's clear that he had it in mind. And, but what made the story so intriguing was that you never got all of it in one story. And when he did try to write a novel uh, incorporating it, the novel was just another longer version of the story. You still had a sense that we have not pieced this together yet. And that's what I think keeps his stories absolutely haunting to people who read them even today, 50 years, 60 years later. Yes, I love, I love that feeling in the story, too, that there's, that there's so much more that you, that you didn't get. I mean, I want you to play feeling satisfied, but also that, that they were frustrated in some ways. Mm-hmm. There's a British critic named Patrick Perinder who described this as, he, he used the term epic fables, that there are stories that imply an entire epic, but the stories also work as stories. Uh, but the epic is never told. That makes sense. I'm kind of curious, Kai, do you feel that 
the changes in publishing of late, which really uh, happened, I think, post the clarion class almost you're talking about, where you have someone like Tor publishing novellas as standalone books and coming out, has helped you gain a readership and a place in the field in a way that might not have been the case even 10 years earlier, because, you know, you have these, you know, there's three books, there's a very, very lovely edition of The Devil in America that came out last year, and then there's been the editions of Sorcerer of the Will Deeps and now Taste of Honey that have given you books to have out rather than stories in places. Do you feel like that's been important and something that's helped you? I mean, the fact that I write novellas has been a huge boon that Word.com has begun to publish novellas because it was extremely hard to find any venue in which to publish before. And and both my um and I have finished both of these novellas that have been published at Tor.com before that imprint started and they were just sitting in a pile somewhere, waiting until there was a place for them to be published. So that part has made a big difference. But even a bigger difference in my career I think has been the internet and how easily having a story up on a site like Tor.com and being accessible from all points of the world at any time has just been a huge boon for any writer who can get their stuff up online. Is it also a matter, though, of being published somewhere where you can be seen? I mean, being online is one thing, but don't you need to be read as well? Well, um, I think I'm taking... Yes, yes. I mean, you, you, I mean, you need to come to people's attention, but once you've come to people's attention, you need to be somewhere accessible. I mean, I hear about stories. I mean, I love... Um, M. John Harrison stories so much and oh, yeah. they're published in some frustrating little magazine in England that I can't find anywhere or in some anthology that's, you know, 10, 10 copies of it were released and, and I wish that, you know, I could find these things online um, somewhere easily accessible and I think it's been a great help to me that my things are so accessible. My writing has been. I, I think one of the things, one of the things that's interesting when you mentioned, because we were talking about Chip Delaney earlier, that to some extent you're right. The, the visibility of a tour.com or a strange horizons or a Lightspeed or the online magazines to some extent has replaced what writers used to get from mass market paperbacks. I think of Chip Delaney starting out in an ACE double with the ballad of beta two back in the, 60s or, or, or Ursula Le Guin with the left hand of darkness and Terry Carr's mass market paperback. The mass market, the original mass market paperback seems in many ways to have been replaced by the online novella. And to some extent, when you go back and look at things like the Ballad of Beta 2, which is, I recall, as was Le Guin's Rocanon's world, originally published as part of an ace double, that those novels really weren't that much longer than the novellas that are being published by tour.com now. I think that's true. And I think that there were basically decades where there was no fiction, you know, of that, of that, that particular, length. you know, that, that was published. You, you had to be much shorter or much longer, but shame well, on you. Is, yeah, well, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I mean, Asimov's has published some great novellas over the years, but you had to you had to get a copy of Asimov's to see it. Uh, when Tor.com publishes a novella, you're right; it's immediately available to everybody, and the immediate feedback you get on something like that, I would think, would be enormously satisfying or enormously terrifying. Well, it's yeah, it's both. <laughs> <laughs> Now, when I released this Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps, it was just pure, pure excitement, innocent excitement. But this next, this next one, I know, I know more about the grinder that comes. To <laughs> <it>. <laughs> you know how the sausages are made. Um, let me ask you this because I'm, I'm curious. We've talked a little bit about politics. We've talked a little bit about. Um, the background, some of the stories. One thing I'm curious to talk to you about is how you feel about the field that you found yourself in today. We talk a lot about, we congratulate ourselves a lot about inclusiveness in the science fiction and fantasy field these days. Do you feel that that's something that is really happening? Are you really seeing 
more diversity? And do you feel like that is something that your work is benefiting from? Well, I have to say my career has been very short. So I've only been published a few, a few years so far. So I can't really speak from a real historical point about how things have changed. I mean, I feel... I felt immensely grateful to a run into Aaron had, um, who had just has a very eclectic taste and, and a hugely open mind. Um, and I don't know. Um, and I, and I sent, I sent, you know, my early pieces out to some other places it was pretty firmly rejected by them. And, and there have to be people in editorial positions who have those open minds or it just, I mean, those are the gatekeepers. It's just not going to be released unless those people are there. And in the time that I've been publishing, there, there seems to be more and more diversity um, than when I started, but, uh, but it's a slow process clearly. And it's not, I mean, Obviously, we're not yet represented as we are in the population, you know, among published authors. So there's still there's still plenty of room for growth. Of course. How, how important is it, do you feel, to see people well, like you in the fiction that you read and that everybody else gets to see? Um, I mean, I think in a personal sense, it's, uh, I, I went years without, you know, reading much fiction written by, you know, black writers, you know, science fiction and fantasy. I mean, it was a huge rarity. And it's exciting to me still to see other people write it um, and publish it. And and I love being able to do it myself. And And so, I mean, I appreciate the experience very much of being able to put out my true thoughts in fictional form and have people buy it. And I still run to the store whenever, you know, Tanner Reeve do publishes a new book and so forth. There's still people I'm really excited to see in print that have, you know, great personal significance to me. Do you feel any sense of collegiality with the other black American science fiction and fantasy writers that we see around today and who are gaining greater and greater prominence, people like Nora Jemison and Nydia Korfor and so on? Um, well, I haven't, I haven't been to cons yet and I haven't, um, I haven't done much of the smoozing thing. So I haven't run into a lot of these people yet. Um, and and frankly, you know, my career has only just begun to reach the point where this might sound funny to say, but that I would uh -huh. come to the notice of such a person, you know. Um, but I, I recently met um, Nora Jem Jemison, and she's been very encouraging and and supportive. And and I also think that we're still, to some extent, um, not at the critical mass yet, where where there can be that sort of collegiality, you know, there, we're still a bit too um, atomized or there's too few of us yet to, for a full community, but I think it's slowly coming together. I think, there, I think also there are multiple communities involved here as well, because, uh, well, one of the people who was, I, th I think I told you this at the time, one of the people who was on the Crawford Award Committee was, uh, when you received the award, was Sophia Samatar whose background is unusually multicultural. Uh, it's not a traditional African-American background. Nettie Okorafor's background is not a traditional African-American background. As you mentioned, many African-Americans have a diffuse kind of heritage. And Nettie knows her parents came from Nigeria. She, she, she's not somebody whose family has lived here for generations. So I think these are multiple communities that have common interests. But at the same time, I think it's a mistake to think of everybody as being part of the same community. Well, that's part of what I mean by there not being a critical mass yet. Um, yeah. I mean, if there were if there were dozens of black writers, I mean, there were more writers who would have a background like mine. I mean, that 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 would more obviously have things in common with me, and that we would inevitably, you know, end up in conversation with one another because we're 
politics are the same, where we came from is the same, and so forth. But Right. 30 years ago, you would have been one of a group with Chip Delaney and Octavia Butler and possibly Stephen Barnes. And that would have been probably it. I was just going to say the con culture, I think, is very important to making those kind of um, those particular mm -hmm. kinds. And, and, and I do want to get out there a bit more because I would like to I would like to meet more of the writers. Hopefully we will see. Uh, and another thing that interested me of just a, a it's kind of a minor thing about uh, a taste of honey, but you have chapter epigraphs from from Zora Neale Hurston and Joseph Brodsky, which right there tells us a lot about the breadth of your reading. But the other issue, which I think is kind of interesting, is that, that Zora Neale Hurston is, has more or less emerged as a kind of Ur figure in, in, in a lot of American fantasy, and not just by African-American writers. I mean, there's a Neil Gaiman novel that basically draws heavily on Zora Neale Hurston. I think there's an Andy Duncan novella that actually features her in it. Um, yeah, I like so that story. That's a great story. Uh, it's, it's a terrific story. And do you think that's a... That's an encouraging sign that writers of all stripes are beginning to recognize the kind of heritage that we get from from writers like Hurston, who was invisible in the fantasy community 20 years ago. Well, um, Hurst, Hurston's reputation in general has become more revived recently. And so That's I true. think that she's, she's gotten um, a lot more attention recently than, than she did in the I mean, she was just forgotten for a while, and Alice Walker had to rediscover her. Mm -hmm. And and she's so great that anybody who reads a lot and comes across her is going to find something to appreciate. So, so yes, I'm. I mean, I'm pleased that, that other people read her and and enjoyed her, and and that you know our work is going to be in dialogue with one with with each other inevitably because we we're sharing that influence. That's kind of what I meant about these different voices who've read different things. And Joseph Brodsky is an entirely different cultural tradition. But the more writers who have read eclectically the way you have bring their ancestors into the science fiction and fantasy dialogue, which I can't help but think is a very healthy development. I think so, too. But I mean, but it also means that there's a sort of um, training that has to happen for the readers who who haven't necessarily experienced some of this stuff before. Um, I feel I feel in my heart like a core genre um, author, but I know that my influences um, are so broad that that others can easily experience me as being very, very different from what they're used to. And so there's this period, I think, where people have to get... <laughs> used to or accustomed to what you're doing and and to all these new ideas that are coming into science fiction and fantasy now that haven't necessarily been there before. There is one other thing I really did want to ask you. Um, and it, 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 in some ways it actually connects directly to the idea of a broad range of influences being widely read. Kelly Robson, who's come along on a very similar timeline to you in her career, um, has talked about the benefits of being a late bloomer, of coming along as a as a mature writer, as a mature adult in in their late thirties, forties, whatever, and st effectively starting a published career there. Do you think you've benefited from that? Yes, yes. I mean, I I feel frustrated in some ways that you know I've in my imagination I could have been doing this when I was you know twenty three instead of forty three, and then. Where would I be now, you know? Um, but but the truth is I couldn't have written this stuff when I was 23. And I needed mm -hmm. that time. I needed that time to develop. And I think, I mean, realistically, the reason that I've had the success to the extent that I've had it so far has to do with the fact that I started so late and that, and that you know, the fiction that I write is much more developed and thought about than anything that I could have written at an earlier point in my life. That's a good point. I, I, I was writing an essay yesterday about um, R.A. Lafferty. It's partly about R.A. Lafferty, one of the crazy eccentric geniuses of American literature, not just of fantasy. He published his first novel when he was 54, uh, and he don't think he published any short stories before he was in his 19, 
in his forties. And there are advantages to that, as you say. I think I think by the time you're writing fiction, you have a sense of what you want to say. The Chip Delaney's of the world, who you know, publishes his first trilogy written when he was a teenager, are distinctly outliers. Uh, I, I think one of the problems with people who become successful earlier in their career sometimes is that they get into a trap of repeating that success, uh, and 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 sometimes are almost discouraged from developing and maturing as writers. And I'm not going to mention any names, but I could. Um, but coming into fiction after you know what your values are and after you're aware of what it is you want to say and you're not simply thinking about, what can I sell to this editor? People growing up in the 1960s, thought there are three markets I have to write for, how do I write for one of these three editors? I think today, and with more mature writers, you're less constrained by those considerations. I um, I mean, I think it's, I think it's healthy for me um, to, to spend a lot of time thinking about um, readers and editors. I mean, I have, <laughs> I have a, a pretty weird imagination, and I remember some of the earlier pieces that put <laughs> at, um, at at Clarion, and I just I just wasn't getting across my ideas very well. Uh -huh. and it, and it was a and it was a wonderful growing experience for me to really think about the editor receiving receiving some piece of fiction from me and having and having to you know get it without me explaining anything. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, I, you know, I feel a lot more confident about about being strange and allowing my strangeness and whatever it is that makes me unique to come through in my fiction, and in a way that I that I felt more doubtful about when I was younger and wondered, you know, so for a long time I tried to write memoir and tried to write mainstream fiction, although I don't feel inspired in those directions at all because uh -huh. you know. I, that's what I should be doing. I remember talking, we had Mary Rickard once on the podcast, and I've talked to her several times. Um, she had published this under M. Rickard. I guess she still does, except for a novel. And, and her experience was a little bit like that. She kept writing these really strange stories and sending them to mainstream venues that wanted to make them into mainstream stories, and she couldn't figure out how to do that because the story she was telling had these bizarre elements in it, and she's a very unique writer even even to today. I mean, she always has been. And she finally discovered an editor who happened to be Gordon Van Gelder of the magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, who said to her, you're, the problem you've been doing with your fiction, I know Mary would not object to my saying this, the problem with your fiction is that you're trying to make it normal. Don't make it normal. Write your fiction. It, uh, it took me a long time to get to it. It's not trying yeah, don't be normal. That's that's my advice to young writers. I, I guess since we're getting to the end of the hour, there's one question I should ask you before we wind up, Kai, and that is, what in practically can we expect to see next? A Taste of Honey is just hitting the stores as we speak and is wonderful, a really terrific thing. I think it's like due out in a week or two. And uh, so, and like I have to say, I've just finished reading it myself and strongly, strongly recommend it. It's a wonderful story. Um, what can we expect to see next from you? Do, do you have an idea yet? Um, well, those novels that I mentioned, <laughs> I've been wrestling with them for the last couple of years. And, you know, getting a novel from 20% done to 40% done is like a huge accomplishment, but it's still so far from 100% done. Um, <laughs> I don't know what will be next. I mean, I have, I'm working on a story that's going really well right now, and I have high hopes that I'm going to get to the end of it. And if I do, then it should be out early next year. But I'm still not sure I'm going to get to the end of it. So I would say look for a really terrifying piece of horror fiction early next year. <laughs> horror fiction? Oh, we didn't even talk about <laughs> horror fiction. We'll have to have you back on once that's out. The most recent piece. Well... Thank you very much for making the time to talk to us today. We've, we've really, really enjoyed it. And thank you very much for the stories. They are wonderful. And I look very much you know, forward to seeing you know, the, the horror story in the new year if that happens and novels if and when they thank come. Thank you for having me. It was fun.
And meanwhile, we can expect, I'm just looking at the back cover of the ARC for A Taste of Honey Now, which will be out October 25th, which is only a few days from now. Yes. So we will all look forward to that, and it's an excellent novella. I wanted to offer my congratulations to you on it. Thank you. Exactly. Okay. Well, until then, thank you very much, and we'll talk to you all next week. <laughs>